Let's turn to Colossians chapter 2, if you will. Colossians chapter 2. Now, you might be thinking that we're going to continue on in our study of Colossians, and we will soon enough. But because this is uh, the message that I'm going to give to the, uh, uh, to the graduates uh, in the next uh, service, uh, I, I had a chance to, uh, uh, or an opportunity, if you will, to, uh, of course, uh, present this last night at our 5.30 service. So I get a lot of practice before the next service. So, and you, you all get to receive it as well. But I've entitled this message, Be Rooted and Built Up in Jesus. And this is something certainly that we all need, even ourselves, as we look at the day of Christ approaching, especially because we see the day of Christ approaching. And because we see the world in the, in the chaos that it's in. And what we see happening in the United States today is somewhat of a microcosm of this whole big picture of, of the chaos and, and, and the wickedness and the evil that's, that's taking place worldwide. But as believers in Jesus Christ, we, we have to take a stand. We have to take a stand. And the Lord has given us something to stand on, and that is his word, his truth. And that is what we are rooted in, grounded in, and built up in. Colossians chapter 2 verse 6 says, As you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. The message is to believers, and it is a message that says, As you have received therefore. Christ Jesus the Lord. Applying, of course, that you have received him. I pray that you have. And if you haven't, I pray that before you leave this place today, you will receive Jesus Christ as your Lord. But because you have received him, so walk ye in him. That is not a suggestion, by the way. That is a command. Rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. And then a warning comes. Beware, lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. One of our goals and purposes here at Calvary Chapel in teaching and preaching the Word of God in the manner in which we do is, as the Apostle Paul puts it in Ephesians chapter 4, uh, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Paul in Ephesians 4 verse 12 says, for the perfecting, which is the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying or the building up of the body of Christ. So in that one sentence, Paul is saying that we are to be equipped and we are to be built up. We are to be perfected and completed in Christ and edified. As a body of believers. And as a result of that goal or purpose, I would want everyone who hears God's word and receives it. 
to be established in the faith biblically. If you write any word down, write the word biblically down. Because we need to be established in the faith biblically. We have his word to be the standard for our, and, and, and the rule for our practice, what we are to follow, what we are to live as believers in Jesus Christ. And then we're to grow into servants. Remember the word servants, write it down. We are to be established in the faith biblically. We're to grow into servants who consider others better than themselves. And for this attitude, and from this attitude, I should say, we are to lead others into maturity in Christ as well. So we are to be established in the faith biblically. We are to grow into servants. And it is from that attitude that we are to lead others into maturity in Christ. And therefore, it is, it is my desire that each of us who confess Christ, uh, who confess faith in Jesus Christ, that we become biblical servant leaders. That is what we're all called to be. That's not just for a few, but we're all called. Now, the challenge for each of us in this room today is to stand true. Stand true as a servant leader for Christ. A servant leader for Christ Jesus our Lord in a compromising, unbiblical, and chaotic world. That's what we see outside of the walls of this church. And the reality is, the walls aren't what make up the church. You make up the church. You're the body of Christ. We are here gathered here to, to listen to the word of God, to be encouraged, to pray for one another, to encourage one another, to exhort one another, to encourage one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs as, as we've done today. But we're going to go out there, all of us, our graduates too, when they get here next service. They're going to go out there and they need to understand this. It's not a simple world any longer. It really never has been. But I pray that there is not one person here who loves to keep their head in the sand so as not to be bothered or perturbed by the conditions in which we find our world. You know, that attitude that says, whatever I don't know won't hurt me. I hope that none of us have ad adopted that attitude. Whatever I don't know won't hurt me. Folks, we are responsible for everything that we know, whether good or bad. The fact of the matter is, when you hear the word of God, you are responsible for what you hear. So you can't put it off on somebody else, or you can't put it off on, uh, on some other thing. We cannot live like that and expect to escape any consequences whatsoever with that kind of attitude. So listen, it doesn't take a rocket science or a brain surgeon to realize that our society today is in real trouble. Our educational system is in such desperate need of help. Oh, we can say it's in need of help financially or certainly philosophically and morally, but it's, it's in need of help spiritually. It's as far gone as it's ever been. And many teachers are in dire need of our support and our prayers, especially Christian teachers who feel handcuffed 
to the ways of the world that are now running the educational system, the public educational system, as it were. So as a nation, many young people are running frantic and frenzied, and not just in our big cities, but even in our smaller communities and rural areas. We need to understand that society has come to a place where many are willing to trade honor and truth and moral living and commitment for self-happiness. Many people today don't have a problem with abortion or same-sex marriage or stealing or drugs. And the list could go on and on as long as they have their nice houses or good jobs or lots of toys and, and can take plenty of vacations for that happiness. But I can tell you this, God has a problem with it in a sense. We have a problem with it because of what we know from the Word of God. It is sad that much of the problem stems from having more of, a, of an I, me, mine attitude and less concern about others. But especially not wanting to have anything to do with the Word of God and God Himself. It is not a current thing that uh, God has been removed from uh, many public places, governmental places, schools. You can go all the way back to the 1960s, the early 1960s. Madeline Murray, how many remember that name? A socialistic, communistic atheist who did everything she could and convinced the right people to take prayer out of the public schools and in effect take God out of the schools. Totally, totally destroying the true understanding of the First Amendment of the Constitution of the United States. I wish we had more time for that. You see, the real problem has little to do with financial standing of our country today. For we hear that it seems to be doing better than it has in a long time. But it has a lot more to do with the erosion of biblical truth and sound principles. What we've been studying on Wednesday night in the book of Amos is kind of also telling us, you know, that the nation of Israel, the, the northern kingdom of Israel, was, was uh, in itself very prosperous while never, never, never worshiping the true God. They worshiped idols. But that came to, a, to an end with judgment. The fact of the matter is that very problem, the erosion of biblical truth and sound principles, has not stopped at, has not stopped at the door of our churches. You see, pulpits at one time were filled with preachers and teachers who are committed to the truth of the scriptures, the, the teaching of prophecy concerning the last days and expounding those truths that were necessary for righteous and godly living as the day of Christ was approaching and is approaching. Today in some churches, pulpits are removed and replaced with a, with a bar stool and a table and rather than solid biblical teaching being proclaimed, a finer, sophisticated, or even an entertaining talk or speech is presented in politically correct terms with, with no willingness to offend anyone. How interesting that Jesus said this himself 
in Matthew 10, verse 32. Listen to what he said. Listen carefully to what Jesus said. He said, whosoever therefore shall confess me before men, him will I confess also before my Father which is in heaven. But whosoever shall deny me before men, him will I also deny before my Father which is in heaven. Think not that I am come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace but a sword. Now think about that statement for just a moment. He is not saying that he came, you know, with that, that desire in the sense of, of wanting to change things by the sword. But think about how people have changed the person and character of Jesus Christ by saying, oh no, our Jesus is meek and mild. Our Jesus isn't going to come and, 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 uh, and, and judge. Well, you haven't read the book of Revelation yet, have you? He says, for I am come to set a man, uh, to set a man at variance against his father and a daughter against her mother, the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. There is going to be tension within the home over Christ, over who he is, over who he, over, over his character, over what he does and what he says. And then he says, a man's foes shall be they of his own household. I don't know how many of you have gone through this. I know I remember this many years ago, over 40 some years ago, 40 I don't even want to say how long ago it was. But when I came to know Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, I, you know, my parents were ready to throw me out of the house because they thought I was in a cult. But I had never been so free in my life than to know Jesus Christ personally. Personally. Which is what we need to have is a personal relationship with Jesus. Before we go on, I have to mention that I was reading an article not too long ago about a, uh, a female reality TV show personality who was boasting in an article that her girlfriend was a gospel singer. And as I read this whole article, as they were interviewing now the gospel singer, who I suppose was already divorced from her husband and had a 13-year-old uh, daughter, that she said, oh, I, I've never had a relationship like this. This is so wonderful. And, and you know, God wants us to love one another and, and whoever it may be. And he really doesn't care. When I saw that line, and I mean, I'm telling you what it said, God doesn't care. I picked up my Bible and I said, 66 books tells me that he does care. He does care. Because now we're making sin acceptable. And that's telling me, when Jesus said, whosoever shall deny me before men, that's a denial of the truth of Jesus Christ. I don't care that you're a gospel singer. I don't know what gospel you're singing for. 
There's only one gospel. Jesus came to die for sinners, which we all are. And we need him. And we need his truth. So we either stand with Christ and for Christ, or we don't. And that struggle is not going to get easier. In fact, it will become even more difficult. Immature, spiritually anemic people who are basically ignorant of biblical doctrine and what it means to really live like Christ and for Christ have now become the majority in churches. That has become the majority. We are the minority because we believe every word of the scriptures, because we teach it from Genesis to Revelation. And we don't mince words. And we don't accept the world's view of things. Which if you accept the world's view of things, you might as well accept the devil's view of things because it's the same thing. But in our text today, the Apostle Paul exhorts us. He says, walk in Christ. And don't forget that the word walk in the scriptures is all about the, the manner of life that we live both publicly and before God. Our manner of conversation, as it says in the King James, is our manner of conduct before the world and before him. And so in verses 6 and 7 of our text, it says, As you have therefore received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk ye in him. Don't say, well, I just received Jesus as my Lord, so now I'm going to go this way and go that way on my own. No, walk in Christ. He's given us the example. He's the one who has perfected all things because he is the only one that's been perfect and complete. Rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as you have been taught. Notice, as you have been taught. Abounding therein with thanksgiving. Go back a few verses to get a running start at the point that Paul is making here. Uh, which, of course, next week we're going to kind of get a little more focused as we come back to our study of Colossians. But in verses 1 through 5, Paul says, For I would that you knew what great conflict I have for you and for, for them at Laodicea. He had a tremendous concern for these churches that were in the very same uh, uh, area of, of the world. And for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh that their hearts might be comforted, being knit together in love, and unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And this I say, lest any man should beguile you or deceive you with enticing or persuasive words. For though I be absent in the flesh, yet am I with you in spirit, or with you in the spirit, joying or rejoicing and beholding your order. In other words, beholding your character, beholding your dignity and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. Paul is describing the maturity of those in the church of Colossae. Now I've mentioned to you that, that uh, those in the church of Colossae, it was a young church, but they had been taught well, the word of God. And so there was a maturity that was knit together in the love of Christ, as Paul was mentioning, and in full assurance of knowing and, un and acknowledging that which was once hidden, the mystery, but is now revealed in Christ, 
the treasures, in other words, of wisdom and knowledge. Now, their maturity extended to their character and their orderliness of conduct because they stood immovable in their faith in Christ Jesus. Now, there was no question that many of them had received Jesus uh, as Lord, and so they were expecting to be walking in the Lord. They had been rooted and grounded in the Lord. They were established in the faith because they had been taught the full counsel of the Word of God. And this resulted in an abundance of thanksgiving. But in spite of this testimony, Paul still considered it necessary to warn the church. So we see in verse 8 that he says, Beware. And that's a word that tells us, yeah, we see it maybe on signs, beware. Beware of, of mean dog, you know. Then you look and there's this little chihuahua on the other side. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't test it. Could be a pretty mean dog. I've, I've seen some mean chihuahuas. I don't know about you. They'll nibble at your toes, man. You won't be able to stand up. You'll just fall over. Beware. It's a warning. Beware lest any man spoil you. Now, spo you know, to spoil you, you have to get out of that idea that, that they're, you know, these uh, uh, men are, are, are making you cheapless. You know, that's a Spanish word for, you know, kind of uh, you know, spoiling you like, you know, giving you the things that you want and, and whatnot. Okay. That's not the spoil that we're talking about here. You ever seen a fruit that you really want to eat, then you cut it open and inside it's spoiled? That's what this is. It says, beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit. Looks pretty on the outside, open up that fruit, it's not going to be pretty on the inside. After the traditions of men, after the rudiments, which are the basic principles of the world, and not after Christ. So in effect, what Paul was saying to the church in verses six through eight is, if you're going to walk in Christ, you better make sure of the person or persons teaching you. You better make sure of the person or persons teaching you. He wanted them to beware of following a worldly advice that purposely leaves out the principles of Jesus' teachings. Well, I hate to say it, but that's happening in the church today. When they put aside the Word of God and go to uh, New Age techniques and contemplative prayers, which actually are not a part of the, uh, well, you know, it's arguable whether it was a part of the desert fathers, as it were. You know, you got to know a little bit about church history to know that there was a moving away of, of, uh, from the Word of God by, by all kinds of uh, uh, adopting of uh, of Eastern practices, which is again what Colossae was was facing, was was you know the Jewish legalism and the, and the Greek philosophies and the Eastern mysticism. That's Gnosticism we've been studying. Because you see, nowadays you don't you don't have to wait till you get into college to face teachers or professors who want to remove from you every vestige of, God, of truth in God's word and even God Himself. 
So if more people are getting uh, introduced to those kinds of philosophies, then they go to their church and they realize, you know, if we want to keep people from going, you know, off the, the deep end, we need to change the way we, we do things. We need to change the things that we say. We need to, really? How about getting back into the Word of God? How about not getting away from this? Not acting like, oh, well, we'll bring them back in. No, 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 it's not going to happen that way. You're going to want them to go through the mud so before they get to the... To the rock? How about just giving them the rock? I mean, you've probably already been exposed to some very non-Christian philosophies of men. One in particular I think all of us are aware of. The philosophy of, I did it my way. Some of you recognize that as a song sung by Frank Sinatra. And some of you are saying, who's Frank Sinatra? How many of you know who Frank Sinatra is? How many of you heard the song, I did it my way? We all like it. Oh, my goodness, Frank Sinatra, right? But the philosophy found in it simply stands in absolute contrast to the Word of God. The Christian is to be a slave of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 22, Paul says, For he that is called in the Lord, being a servant, which is a bond slave, is the Lord's freeman. Likewise, also he that is called being free is Christ's servant. We are never more free than as servants of Jesus Christ. But to be a servant of Jesus Christ, it is to be obedient to his word. And when we are obedient to his word, we've never been so free. Do you understand that? Because if we're only slaves to our flesh, then we're not free. Because the flesh will demand more and more for itself. And even Jesus, the only begotten of the Father, said in Luke 22, verse 42, He said, Father, if thou be willing. This is there in the Garden of Gethsemane before going to the cross. He said, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. When we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we no longer belong to ourselves. We belong to him. And I think this is a, a, a passage of scripture that we oftentimes neglect, and we better listen to it. It's 1 Corinthians 6, verses 19 and 20. What? Know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which you have of God? And ye are not your own. For you are bought with a price. And therefore glorify God in your body. And in your spirit. Which are God's. Then there is that great statement of Paul's in Galatians 2.20 when he says, I am crucified with Christ. When he says very simply and yet profoundly, he says, I am crucified. I'm dead in Christ <coughs> and with Christ. <coughs> Excuse me. 
I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. As followers of Jesus Christ, we're not here to do our own thing anymore. We're here to do God's will. And through his word, to do things his way. His way, not ours. Commit your way unto the Lord. That's something we see in the book of Proverbs. We see it in the book of Psalms. Commit your way unto the Lord. Move from being self-centered to being Christ-centered. It's never to be, I did it my way. Because we've already done things my way. Uh, it's what brought us to have to come to Christ. Because <laughs> I did it my way. Oh, I need Jesus now. Right? There's another philosophy that people have to deal with. There's no such thing as absolute truth. You ever heard that? Yeah. That's part of the philosophy of today, especially in colleges and universities. Everything is relative. Relativism is the very focus of, of, of man's philosophies today. By the way, this philosophy can be described in this manner. Listen carefully, and I quote, Two people can define truth in conflicting ways and both still be correct. Ah. Did you get it? I'll read it again. Because some people didn't get it last night. I have to read it again. That's why I say it's in quotations here. Two people can define truth in conflicting ways and both still be correct. Let me say it again. Ah. Really? Interestingly enough, the Lord gave the Ten Commandments to Moses and the children of Israel in Sinai never for them to be considered the Ten Suggestions. Commandments, not suggestions. And they were meant for every generation and people. They were 10 divine laws, which we can call absolute truths. 10 divine laws called absolute truths given directly by God to be taught and obeyed for all people for all time. Don't steal, don't covet, don't murder, don't swear falsely. And by the way, worship only God. That's just part of it. Jesus narrowed them down to two. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. In these hang all the law and the prophets. Absolute truths. 
Many a secular college professor or teacher will attempt to entangle and persuade you in, in, in this philosophy of relativism. And it's not just in colleges and universities. It's in societal organizations, cultural organizations, business organizations, it's all, it's all around us. They want to entangle you in this philosophy of relativism, meaning that truth can be changed in this circumstance or that situation. In this circumstance, that situation, things can change. May I suggest that you put that person on trial, the one who's telling you all things are relative, not absolute. I want you to put them on trial. Put them on trial for murder for some sexual offense. They may not have committed the murder or the offense, but they might be falsely accused. Nevertheless, the person on trial will need a witness to testify that he was not at the scene and had nothing to do with the crime they're accused of. Are you following along with me? Now, how important is the testimony of a witness? That he or she tell, tells the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, in essence, the absolute truth. I mean, the last thing that the accused wants is some head-in-the-clouds philosopher talking about truth being relative. Someone has to be telling the truth and another a lie. I mean, there is no middle ground for the believer in Jesus Christ. We are to believe in the infallible and in the inerrant word of God as the basis for absolute truth. This is the reason why in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, tells us that all scripture is given by inspiration of God. All scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. It is to understand that in Isaiah 40, verse 8, that the grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Why? Because it never changes. What are people doing today? They're trying to change the word of God to fit their lifestyles. Psalm 119, verse 160. Thy word is true from the beginning. Which, by the way also has this understanding that the word is true, thy word is true from the beginning and will always be true, never changes. Notice, every one of thy righteous judgments endureth forever. That's God's word, never changes. That's why I'm very leery of many modern translations today of the scriptures because they are changing by giving us thought patterns rather than by literally uh, translating the word, word by word, they're giving us thoughts that are actually inter interjected there by, by those who are doing the translating. And the worst, by the way, is the message. You have a problem, if you like the message, come and talk to me. I'm ready for you. In fact, in the, in the next few weeks, we're gonna be having some 
some booklets that uh, Warren Smith has written. Our good friend Warren Smith, who's been with us for the uh, last, uh, well, within the last five, six, seven years. But, uh, but Warren has written a, 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 a powerful uh, uh, a booklet on the issue of the, of the message and the problems with that particular translation. But it is, it, I mean, it's off the wall, okay, folks? So I'm just letting you know. So that, again, when somebody tells you, listen, you can't, be, you can't believe in absolute truth. I mean, all things are relative. My question to them is, do you believe that absolutely? Well, if they say, well, I guess I do, then I say, you're a hypocrite. Because you cannot be telling me that there are no absolutes while believing something absolutely. Can you be relatively hit by a bus out in front of the, relatively, you know, made a, a, a hood ornament? No, you absolutely are going to be hurting. See how crazy that is? That's the work of the devil, folks. From the very beginning. You can actually begin to read it very carefully there in the third chapter of the book of Genesis. Where the serpent, did God really say? Questioning Eve, did God really say that you'll die? Did God really say these things? And then he says, no, God's a liar. He, you won't die. You'll be like him. So relativism is really just a, 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 a springboard into self-deification, becoming your own God. Okay, there's another philosophy. We've got to move on here. Muslims, Buddhists, Christians, Jews, and all others pray to the same God? <laughs> I have a problem with that one. But that's what people believe today. Go back to 9-11, 2001. You had all of these, these diplomats and, you know, the, you know, the saying, oh, listen, oh, you know, we're, we're not attacking all the, the Muslims. I mean, you know, they're a, they're a peace-loving people. I mean, that's what, they're a religion of peace. Isn't that what Islam means? Did we learn something a couple of weeks ago with Elijah? Islam doesn't mean peace. They don't worship the same God as we do. But then you go on, you know, they just say, well, you know, we all, we're all going to the same place. Oh, no, I'm not. And I don't want you to go to the same place everybody else is going either. There are really only two places, Scripture tells us. One is to be with Jesus wherever he is. That's the best place to be. So anyway, getting back to this, the argument in this philosophy of Unitarian Universalism is that people pray to the same God, though they use different names for their God. But are all religions just different paths up to the top of the same mountain to God? Well, if that were the case, then Jesus would, not, would never have, have had to come and die on a cross for our sins. But he did. I mean, wouldn't that be economical if he would say, well, I don't have to come die because everybody's going to get to the same place anyway. No, he came in expediency, 
in immediacy, at the right time, at the right place. Read Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. He came to die for the sins of men because we were going to perish without him. On more than one occasion, Jesus just flat out told some of the religious men of his community, you're greatly mistaken. See, this is another thing. People don't want to challenge and say, listen, that's not true. Jesus did it. See, if he doesn't care, you know, whatever kind of lifestyle you want, if he doesn't care, but he does. He cares enough to say, you know what? You're ignorant. And as much as he said that to his own uh, religious leaders, Mark 12, verse 24, Jesus answered, saying unto them, do, do you not therefore err because you know not the scriptures? You can interject there, you're supposed to know it, but you don't know them. You knew not the scriptures, neither the power of God. And a few verses later, he says in verse 27, he's not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. You therefore do greatly err. Truth is essential. It was essential to the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It was essential to the preaching of, of, of Jesus in his time on this earth. And it is essential for the preaching of the gospel to this day. So the God of the Muslims and the God of the Buddhists is, is very, very different from Jesus Christ. We know that the God of the Muslims is Allah, not the same as our God. But they put more weight in their prophet than they do in their God. The Buddhists, they, they're working toward becoming gods themselves. So eventually they become their own gods. And by the way, people who pray to Satan, because there are Satanists who pray to Satan. People who pray to Satan are obviously not praying to the same God as Christians. Whew. What did Jesus say in John 14, verse 6? He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. That is an absolute statement. There's nothing relative about it. It is absolute. In Isaiah 45, verse 5, it says, I am the Lord. God says, I am the Lord and there is none else. There's no other God, in other words. There is no God beside me. I girded thee, thou, but though thou hast not known me. He says, I girded thee, though thou hast not known me. There's no God beside me. The claims I am making to you today are considered to be politically incorrect. Well, I'm glad I am. You either believe them or you don't. Paul warned the Christians of his day not to believe the traditions and the philosophies of men, for they will try to deceive and to make you believe otherwise. But there's one last thing that I want to touch upon. That philosophy that says, if it feels good, it must be okay. If it feels good, it must be okay. In other words, you can tell if something is morally or ethically right for you. By the way, that's relativism again. By whether or not it works in your life and it just feels right. Just like that gospel singer says, this just feels right and God doesn't care. 
<laughs> ah, I'm sorry for making all these noises today. It's appalling. You know, there's a Christian rebuttal to this philosophy. You know what it is? Being beaten, mocked, and crucified did not feel right or good to Jesus. And all the disciples couldn't make any sense of such a horrible loss of Jesus on the cross. They couldn't make any sense of it. They were discouraged. And they were broken in spirit until the resurrection. I believe it was Ravi Zacharias who said Jesus Christ was at the center of his father's will at the worst moment of in his life. Jesus Christ was at the center of his father's will at the worst moment in his life. Listen to the words in Matthew 27 verse 46. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Nothing to feel good about. He was on that cross in my place and in yours. Morality and ethics have very little to do with my feelings and how well something works out. But they have a whole lot to do with my obedience to the will and the word of God. Jesus in John 14, 23, again, on his way to the cross, he answered and said unto him, if a man love me, he will keep my words. And my father will love him. And we will come unto him. Do you notice that Jesus didn't say, oh, my father doesn't care. He loves you no matter what you do. No. No. He said, if a man love me, and he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him, we will come unto him, the Godhead will come unto him, and make our abode with him. Paul went on to say, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. For in him, in Jesus Christ, dwelleth all the fullness of the God, of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him. You are fulfilled. You are perfected. You are matured in him, which is the head of all, of all principality and power. When I read those words at the end of verse 10, it reminds me, today we are living more of the Ephesians chapter 6 uh, uh, struggle than ever before. 
the struggle of what it says in that one verse that says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and the rulers of the darkness of this age and spiritual wickednesses in high places. We are living that today, now. So we cannot let our feelings be our guide instead of God's word. Don't let your feelings be your guide instead of the word of God. And always remember that the main thing, the main thing is Jesus Christ. The main name is Jesus Christ. The main person is Jesus Christ. Keep walking in him. Keep growing your roots deep in him. Keep living in him. Keep abiding in him. I'm going to ask you some questions as we close. The questions are for the graduates, but hey, we got to graduate too, from this life into the next. So let me ask you these questions. Would you be willing to join with me and say, I am going to commit my life right now to making sure that I don't go the way of the world. Will you join me in that? Would you be willing to say, I want to be able to live the kind of life that pleases God? Wouldn't it be great to know that your life was, was able to not only affect this generation, but also the generations to come? Well, to do that, we need to be willing to listen to God's word. But we must take it a step further. We must also be willing to live God's word. So let's do that.